Good morning. How's everybody? Good. My name's Eric, if you don't know me. And uh, just a quick note, it's good to be cold, isn't it? You know, it might have been a little rough, but it's good. It's fun. Praise God for that. Um, just a few announcements before we start. One, um, if you are not a member, we have a new member meeting after this service over to the left when you walk out in the A101 classroom, uh, 102. And so if you don't know what that is, that's just simply saying, hey, I want to know more about the church. I want to be a part of the church family. I want to support. I want to I go with the leadership of the elders and pastors. Um, and so you can go and check that out. You don't have to commit on the spot, um, but do that after this service. And then next week uh, after church, we'll have a church family business meeting go over the budget and uh, for the next year. And then also it's a time to ask questions um, because so much happens here. And if you notice, we're not really a drive announcements from the pulpit. We try to keep uh, the teaching and preaching of God's word and worship central. So that's when you can ask questions like, well, what color is it going to be? And is it OSHA certified? And what type of concrete did you use? All the things you really care about, right? You can ask at those kinds of meetings. So we encourage you Uh, to do that. And then just last thing is uh, December is our biggest month of the year, uh, giving wise. And so if you're able, you know, to give beyond what you normally give, uh, we would ask you pray about that, consider that. If not, keep us in your prayers. You know, God's been doing great things. Church is growing. And I just want to continue to be faithful to what he's doing. And part of that's through uh, your faithful giving. So here we go. If you notice, this year's a little bit different. Uh, We don't typically do an Advent series for Advent and uh, one unique thing is that this year, uh, Christmas lands on a Sunday. And so that's really cool. But deeper than that, uh, just kind of maybe some of the reasoning I wanted to walk through is um, a lesson I learned uh, really young. I was like in seventh grade, and it just it stuck with me, is in seventh grade, uh, I played on a, on a tackle football team. Now, before you guys call me a liar, okay, I sat on the bench and I didn't play. Okay, so let's get that out there. And it was short-lived because my mom said, you got three concussions, you're a China doll, you're not playing football. I think that's a direct quote, right? So it was short-lived. But anyways, uh, our first game, we won 13 to 0. And we were all pumped. And uh, we got called to get on the, on the end zone. You got to think, we won 13-0 and we're on someone else's field. And the coach said there was 10 penalties. So you're going to go down back, that's one, 10 times. 2,000 yards, right? It's a 200 yards each lap. And he said, you guys think the goal is winning. The, the goal is not winning, which is kind of a lie. All coaches want to win, right? But anyway, so he said, the, the, the point isn't winning. It's how you win. And I won. He said, it's about giving maximum effort. It's about being disciplined. And it's about playing for your brother. And when you don't play disciplined, it negates the play. Like you have a penalty. It takes away from your brother. And you've now hurt him. And you don't give maximum effort. You're not giving what your brother deserves your best. And so it kind of hit me with that is, you know, so Christmas, I think sometimes we think the win is getting to the Christmas service, singing Silent Night, having a tree, opening presents, and saying, thanks, Jesus. It's not about that moment. It's all the things that lead up to that moment. It's how you get there. And part of how you get there is through Advent, it reminds you, no, there's hope in the coming of Jesus. There's peace in the coming of Jesus. So that when you get to the actual birth of Jesus, you're like, boom, it just explodes on all the beauty and facets of what it is. And sometimes we just need to take a little bit of time and intentionally walk to the greatness of what that moment is and really know that the win 
is celebrating the totality of what Christ did, not just singing a song, having a tree, and getting a present. And so that's a little bit different this year. So let's pray, and uh, we'll hop into our text. Through Jesus, we thank you so much for loving us. Uh, and we thank you that we get to open this text and we get to walk through. And it's uh, my prayer that your words would speak and not mine, and that you would uh, just speak through me, and that our wor- your words would just put us at peace, to put us at peace with who you are and what you've done and what our place in this world is. And so we just thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in um, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we're walking through uh, 6 and 8. And so a little bit of context I want you to see is, you know, chaos, you know, I would say we live in chaos now currently, is not new to the Bible. The Bible has very chaotic times. And this Isaiah 9 passage comes in the midst of turmoil and chaos and oppression. And, and here's what I, why I want you to understand that is what was said to them then is even more pertinent to us now. And if it was good enough for them then, it's, it's, it's good enough for us now. Here's what I mean. When we think about being oppressed in kind of our culture, by the way, that word is so overused, but we think of, you know, my air conditioner is not working and I, and I have leftovers and, you know, the minimum wage, like we think oppression. Like, no, think Israel oppressed a Syrian overthrow. Like, this is a really big deal. Imagine you wake up and you walk out and you don't see a United States flag, but you see a Russian flag or a Chinese flag. And you turn on your radio and you don't hear your favorite song, you hear a government message. You go to turn on the World Cup, uh, college football playoffs, you don't see a game, you see a government representative telling you what to do. You go to show up to church and it's boarded up and it's closed down. You go to call your friends and your contacts are limited. That's a totally different world, isn't it? Okay. And so the advice or what, what the hope that's given to them far outweighs anything I think we are going through. But nonetheless, we find ourselves, you know, similarly looking at there's politics and elections and there's economy and there's world wars and there's, there's you know, natural disasters and, and all of these things are coming together. And essentially what you have is in the text the same thing. They're under Assyrian oppression and they're being just oppressed and they don't have their own country and their own God and any of these things. And so chapter nine comes. And if you look a little bit earlier in verse one, he's like, hey, out of gloom, out of anguish, out of darkness, there is a light. There's hope in the midst of this. And in this light, there is a God and that God's a counselor, he's a father, He's the Prince of Peace. He's the God Almighty. Therefore, rest. You're okay. It's what's used to calm them in there. Now, what's important to understand about chaos is that a lot of the chaos was self-created, meaning Israel's making poor choices. They're not listening to God. And part of the consequence uh, to those poor choices is this current chaos. God allows the kingdom to come in and rule them and oversee them. And so as you work your way through Isaiah, you can just see Israel making bad, bad choices. They are very superstitious. They're very materialistic. They're worshiping false gods. They don't have good leadership. Um, Their morals are becoming less and less and less. 
they have an addiction to alcohol. And so what, what you're seeing through there is all these bad choices. God says, okay, here's part of the punishment. You're going to have a new authority. And they're going to oppress you and you're going to be slaves and you're going to work for them and you're going to have hard times. But in the midst of that hardship, I want you to be encouraged because a child is coming. And this child is going to be like, and we're going to walk through that as it. So I just want you to understand the part of the chaos we live in is self-imposed. It's self-imposed through the lack of trust in God and his word and Jesus. And if you kind of guys will take, you guys mind if we take a nerdy moment? Okay, just take a nerdy moment. You know, how did we get here? You know, it's similar to Israel. You walk through chapters one to nine, you can see how they got there. You know, for us, if you look what's called pre-modernity or, or pre-modern area, you can kind of look that, you know, people generally went to church. They trusted God's word as the authority. And, and that was the mainstay in our culture. Fair? Is that true? Some of you aren't old enough. You're not as old as me, so you can't remember these things. But it, it did happen. And then what happens? Modernity, modern era. Reason, 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 science, evolution. We don't need faith. We don't need the Bible. We don't need God. Prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it, right? So everything is about proof. So then the Bible gets removed. We don't have a moral compass. We don't have a right and wrong. So then modernity pushes into what's called post-modernity, post-modernism, meaning I don't, I, all I need is a reason to do whatever I want. And I can do whatever I want, and that's my reason because there's no guiding truth and I can prove it. And so you get into this post-truth, post-fact, so I could do whatever I want. And, and whatever I want is I want the children to be the idol that we worship, that they are everything. And then we get shocked when children are told they can choose their gender because they've been told their whole life they can choose whatever they want. You can kind of see how we got there, true? Yeah, so part of the chaos started a long time ago, rejecting God's word, rejecting Jesus as the central truth, rejecting that there is an absolute truth in God himself. And so this is kind of how we get, so we have chaos. And so the, the, the words that are spoken to the people of Israel are the same words that are spoken to us, that there will always be chaos. And what separates us from non-Christians is how we respond to the chaos. Because what's gonna creep up in this text is that in this dark chaos, God's gonna bring light. And for the people that see the light, it changes everything. And so the idea would be as Assyria is, is oppressing Israel, there's people that see Christ. They see this future promise of a counselor, of a king, of a peacemaker, and they see the light and they trust him no matter how hard they beat them, no matter how much they take from them, they trust and it's to radically change and show there's a better way that nothing can take the love of the father nothing take me from jesus and so that's kind of what we're trying to say now is in this chaos will we respond in a way that says oh my gosh how can you act like that how can you be so calm how can you be at peace okay so the progression is this one it's who is christ and then two what is christ doing who is he? What's he doing that shapes the way we respond? Okay, so verse six now. There's our introduction. It says, okay, so there's this child, and he's going to be this light. He's going to be born, 
He's a son and he's given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It's the first thing. He's saying literally he's going to be the greatest advisory you've ever seen. And there's a quote here I want you to just work with me through and to catch the magnificence of these words. It says, he is a wonderful counselor. The word wonder is generally attributed to a work of God. The word is sometimes used of works performed by man, but it is generally used to describe miracles and wonders performed by God. The plagues of Egypt, the conquest of Cana, the crossing of the Jordan, and the miracles in the wilderness. His very instruction is wonderful. His opinions are extraordinary. His recommendations are impressive. His advice is phenomenal. He is the only one worth listening to. Okay, so what are we getting at? That word wonder is typically used for miracles. The Red Sea gets parted. That's wonder. It's a miracle. God speaks creation into existence. That's wonder. That's a miracle. If that's the adjective that's describing his knowledge. Okay, I'm a nerd, but you got to be impressed by that, right? Like the adjective used about his knowledge is miracle working knowledge. That's how smart he is. Miracle working other world, out of this world knowledge. Why is that important? Because when you're in the middle of chaos, one of the questions you ask is, why God? This doesn't make any sense. I don't like that. And what the text is saying, he is a wonderful counselor, miracle working advisor. He knows everything. And so rather than sitting there and going, is this the best you could do, God? God, I can't make sense why this would happen in the world, why this evil would be there, why that person gets hurt, why that person dies, why that country is oppressed. It's saying his knowledge, don't question him. He has knowledge that's work, miracle working ability. It's a bold statement, isn't it? It's saying, so when you're in that dark chaos, you have someone to go to who knows absolutely everything. You don't need to worry. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised. You will never go to him and he's like, I don't know what to do. What would you do? You're never going to go to him and he's like, yeah, I really didn't see that happening. I got to talk to the Trinity and kind of rework the plan. It's no wonderful counselor. Why does this matter? Because typically what we do is we make a decision and then we go to the Bible to support the decision. And then we call it biblical. If he's a wonderful counselor, that means you go to him first, and then that drives the decision. How many times do you go to the text, and then it informs how you should be a husband, a wife. It informs how you should spend your money. It informs how you should speak to other people. It informs how you should be an employee, it informs how you should be a boss, it informs how you should be a parent, and it's text-driven, wonderful counselor-driven. He's saying he knows everything. Every little question you have, he knows. Seek no other. Go to him first. 
And we kind of have it flip-flopped. Where do we run to when we need advice? Google. Google knows. It'll tell us. And then we'll slap a Bible verse on top of it. And we'll call it Jesus. This is saying, hey, people who are freaking out and being oppressed and your homes are being burned and you're being beaten, go to the counselor. Go to the counselor and say, how do I survive this? How do I trust this? You know everything. You know everything. I can trust you. I can trust you. There's nothing you're not caught off guard with. Okay. And I want you to see this builds. And then as it builds, we're going to get to a glorious conclusion, I promise. Okay. We're going to skip over mighty God because I want to get to everlasting Father. And please understand this. So there's kind of two things people get a little confused by. One is the term Father, and two is the term Prince, because Jesus is the Son, and he is a King, and he's the one being promised. This is like what we would call adjectives that are describing what the king is like. This king knows everything. This king can do anything. This king has the love of a father that's perfect. This king will administer, that's what a prince does, will administer peace. It's describing who the king is. And so the king has a father's love. Why is that important? Because It's very hard to trust wisdom, to trust someone who you don't think loves you. Is that true? It's really hard to say, I'm going to ignore my feelings and do what you want. The, 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 The fuel that helps us do that, one is the Holy Spirit, but two is that the Father loves me. I can do this. Okay, So let's look at a text like Psalm 103, 11 through 14. And I just want you to see the way the Father aspect is described. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now catch this, for he knows we are formed He remembers we are dust. He says, how great is this love? And it's not lost on the Father that A, we're created, and B, we're created from dirt. The Father knows this about us. He knows that we fret. He knows that we worry. He knows that we get angry. He knows that we try to take things in our own hands. He knows that we chase things to fill the holes in our lives. He's saying, but don't, don't chase those things. He loves you. He loves you so much, and he loves you eternally. That's why eternal is so part, important, everlasting. You know, the, the father imagery in the Bible gets hard sometimes because most of America grew up with no dad or a bad dad. And so it gets weird to read the father imagery into the Bible. This saying is he's everlasting. This dad never leaves. He's always there. And unlike your dad, this dad has all the answers. Dads think they have all the answers, but this one, he has all the answers. And check this part out, and we'll get to it in peace, but this is one dad you don't have to fight with. This is one dad you don't have to fight with. If you have a good dad, even a 10% good dad, you fight with him. You fight with him. You want to know why? Because one of the roles of the dad is to be an authority. And by nature, the dad's telling you you can't do things, and it makes you angry. True? And so you're sitting there saying, but this dad, he's not like your dad. 
this dad's perfect, he knows everything, and his love is perfect, you don't need to fight him. You don't need to be the three-year-old that's saying, I don't want to eat vegetables. And it's like, well, then I'll shove these down your throat. Right? You, you, you say, I don't want to do this, but he's perfect, and he knows everything. You can trust him, and he loves you. This is one father. You don't have to fight. He doesn't leave. He knows you perfectly. He knows you're formed. He knows your insecurity. He knows you're angry. He knows you're hurt. You don't need to worry about his intent. If he loves you, you don't need to earn his love. His love doesn't fluctuate. You don't need to work hard so he'll love you. And then when bad things, you think he doesn't love you. So then you work harder so he will love you. He's an everlasting, perfect father. This is supposed to bring comfort in the midst of trials. Comfort in the midst of darkness. Calm in the midst of the storm. That's why it moves now to the mighty God. So he knows everything. He perfectly loves you. But he's also able to do anything. He can do anything. And why is that important? Because inevitably we come to this wrestling, well, if God loves me and he can stop bad things at any moment and he doesn't, how is he good and how is he loving? What the text is getting at, he knows everything. You're created, he's uncreated, and he's all-powerful. So what you need to do is be at peace, that he knows what he's doing and you don't. That's ultimately what the Christian has to come to that conclusion is, do I trust God's judgment character, nature. This text is saying, yes, he knows everything. He loves you and he can do anything. Therefore, whatever situation you find yourself in, be at peace. Because he loves you, he knows you, he's with you, and he's able to get you through it. You're going to be okay. This is the hope that's given to Israel. There's light coming, and it's hundreds of years. This light's coming. This relationship is yours. This king is yours. Now, Jesus comes. Jesus lives. But does the government change? No, it doesn't. He doesn't overthrow the emperor. He doesn't overthrow Rome. What is he telling them? This is how you live and survive on earth. And then one day in the future kingdom, he'll make everything right. Be at peace. Be at peace kind of put this together. There was a story I came across in, in my study I really liked. I want to read it to you, and I just want you to see how it all kind of ties together. It says, this is a Richard Williams, a young surgeon and a Methodist lay preacher, an angelic, Anglican minister, um, Alan Gardner, was a mission, missionaries to uh, Tierra de Fuego. In 1851, their ship was forced to winter in a cold and bitter bay. And the supply vessel never arrived. Everyone on board their ship died of cold and starvation. Even as they were suffering on Good Friday, April 18th, 1851, Williams wrote in his journal. That's what he writes. Poor and weak, though we are, our abode is a very Bethel. Now that word's got ruined modernly, and I apologize, but it really means a house of God. Is God's house. Their dwelling is God himself, is what it's saying. 
to our souls. God is our abode. And, and God we feel and know is here. And he writes in his journal about three weeks later, should anything prevent me from ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and have not changed situations with any living man. What is he saying? Hey, family, I wasn't drunk when I wrote this. I wasn't delusional when I wrote this. No one put a gun to my head when I wrote this. I was literally meant to write it. I mean it. And I wouldn't change situations with anyone in the world. When your supply ship does not arrive, God can make your crisis a very home, that's hell, to your soul. As you find by faith that he is with you, he makes you happy beyond description. What is it getting at? He's saying that this man understood God knows everything and God is all powerful and he is my father. And I don't need to be mad, angry, or at war with him. I'm exactly where I need to be. Because if he wanted me to be somewhere else, he would have saved me. If he wanted that food to be here, it would. So it doesn't matter how cold or how hungry. I am at peace with the situation God has me in. Because I trust that he knows everything, he can do anything, and he loves me perfectly. Do you see the conclusion, how it wraps in there? And that's powerful, isn't it? And I'm looking at that going, I can't even handle Bakersfield winter. I can't imagine that. I mean, this is no heater days. And this is no food. And what is he saying? I, I have the Father. I have the King. I have everything I need. I'm okay, guys. Don't you worry. See, he's at peace with God. He's not wrestling with God. He's not going, why, God? This isn't fair, and why not them? And if I would have left the day earlier, and why did they die? And why did I live? And why am I not with my family? What is he saying? Family, you need to know, I'm so blessed. I have Jesus. Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing, everything I need, I have in Christ. What is he telling Israel? You're being oppressed. You're being beaten. You're under their authority. It's okay. You have a king who knows everything. A king who can do anything. He's all-powerful. Who loves you perfectly as a father. Be at peace. Don't fret. Don't take things into your own hands. You see, what is he getting at? When we find ourselves in chaos, you find one of two responses. You either fight or you have flight. And what this is saying is, no, be at peace. When things are going crazy, we, we go at war with God. No, God, it shouldn't be like this. It needs to be like this. And that person hurt me, and I'm going to hurt them. And that person did me wrong, and I'm going to do that. And my life shouldn't be like this. It should be like that. So I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do it. It's going to be me. Or you fly. I want nothing to do with it. I'm going to hide. I'm going to go away. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not going to deal with it. And it's not going to be there. Fear or fight. He's saying, neither be at peace. Trust the Lord in his judgments. Trust the Lord in his knowledge. Trust the Lord in his power. Trust the Lord in his love. Be at peace. So what this practically looks like is really contentment in all things. It's what the man's getting at. It's the ability to say, you know what? God knows everything. He saw how bad my parents were to me. 
He saw how bad that boss was to me. He saw the abuse I took as a child. He saw the abuse I took as a spouse. He saw the injustice done to me in whatever situation you find yourself. And you can lay it at the feet and say, he will take care of it. He will take care of it. I don't need to fight God. I don't need to fight the person. He's going to do it. Because that's when we shift from who is Christ to what will Christ do. That's the next verse, verse 7. It says, on the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it. Check it. With justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Then what does it say? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. What? Will do this. Will do this. So then you say, he will take care of it. He's going to judge those who have caused harm. We don't need to take justice into our own hands. We don't need to fret. We don't need to worry. We don't need to be angry. Now, the counter to this is, it's not saying that we don't stand for truth. Part of this is saying, my king knows everything. My king is all-powerful, so I'm going to uphold all that he teaches. And no matter what happens to me, I'm at peace with it. This is what's revolutionary in the New Testament. This is what's revolutionary in, in, in any Christian movement is as the church is, as Christians are persecuted, the church grows. That's a weird thing, isn't it? Because what are they saying? I'm at peace with God. Take my house. I'm at peace with God. Take my health. I'm at peace with God. Take whatever you want because I'm going to heaven and God will make it right with you. Far, it's better for him to deal with you than me because he's greater than me and he can bring way more pain than I can. I'm going to be at peace. And so people who are trying to persecute Christians can't get them to change. They can't buy them off. They can't beat them hard enough. See, because they're a light in the midst of the darkness and they go, how, how is that? How, how, why is that? They will have a perfect father. I have an all-powerful king. I'm at peace, wherever God might have me. One day this won't be anymore. I'm Revelation 21. I'm going to live in heaven where there's no tears, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no insecurity, there's no anger, there's no abuse, there's no injustice. That's where I'm going. I'm at peace. And so the beauty of what this passage is getting at is, hey, Christian, no matter how ugly this world gets, no matter what flag maybe one day dawns this country, be at peace. There is a light. Walk towards the light. Don't stumble in darkness trying to right every wrong, trying to in, in kind of take your justice and impose it on other people. Try to make things right that only God can make right. Be at peace. Be at peace no matter how tragic the circumstances. That's encouraging, isn't it? It should be. It's saying no matter how hard your life is, you can still be at peace. You don't need to fight with God. 
You might be thinking, but God, you need to change my kids. You need to change my spouse. You need to take away my sickness. It's like, you know what? Lay it at the feet of Jesus. He'll deal with that person. He will or won't heal your sickness. He'll deal with that injustice. Focus on being faithful. Focus on walking in the light. Focus on telling the darkness that there is light. Be at peace. And as the world falls apart around us, they said, she Christians going, how are you so calm? How are you at peace? Why aren't you angry? Doesn't that bother you? Yes, it bothers me. It bothers me deeply. But I know God will judge. There will be justice. My job is to tell the truth of who he is and let him deal with the consequences. Let him deal. He's the king. He's the decider. He doesn't need my advice. He doesn't need my judgments. He doesn't need my thoughts. I just trust him completely. It's a powerful moment, isn't it? It's a very powerful moment. And to think that's a part of what the Christmas message is. He comes in flesh and says, this is how you live. This is how you be at peace with God. You listen to him perfectly. And he says, I'm going to die on that cross so you no longer have to war with him, that your sins can be paid for, allowing you to be in this kingdom, be in his family, and never have to worry again. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get things you like and you're not going to have hard circumstances and people aren't going to do bad things to you. It just means he'll take care of it. Don't you worry. He loves you. Don't you worry. He's got a plan. Don't you worry. He knows more than we do. Don't you worry. Be at peace. Okay, some questions for us to think about as we think through this. Uh, First question, uh, how does being at peace with God help you while on earth? Here's the thing. When we war with God, whether it's, God, I need that. Why don't I have that? Why do they have that? You're not trusting in the king's ability to provide or the everlasting father. A father provides. You're not trusting that you don't have that life. You have this life. You don't have that stature. You have this stature. That person did do that to you. You do not need to make it right. God will make it right. That burden gets lifted from you. You don't need to think that, that if I forget about it, then it never happened and it's not real. No, God, we just said, God knows all things. He knows he'll judge. What good do we do when we hold on to it? Hold on to the pain or hold on to the you think you deserve or hold on to why do they have that life? I should have that life. When you hold on to it, does it make you feel like a better person? Does it calm you down and make you feel special? Does it? It just makes you more angry. And and be able to lay it down at the feet of Jesus and say, I'm exactly where I need to be circumstantially. This is my family. This is my world. This is my context. I trust him. It allows you to love people. It allows you to not fight fights you don't need to fight. It allows you to not be angry. It allows you to be at peace with God. It completely changes the way you parent, the way you're married, the way you're an employee, because you're not always angry thinking, I should be like this. You're trusting that God loves you. It's powerful imagery, isn't it? Read it again. You'll see it. Two, how often do you go to God for advice? This is really important. 
says he's a wonderful counselor. How often do you start with, okay, I go to the text. Oh, wow, that's how I should do that. Or is it exactly the opposite? I think this, I think this. Oh, there's a verse that supports it. No, 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 if he knows everything, doesn't it make sense to go to him? It does, doesn't it? There's never going to be a time when you go to God and you're like, God, this should happen and this and this and this. And God goes, wow, you're so smart. I don't know how I didn't think of that. Don't waste your time trying to tell God how it should be. Spend your time going, God, how do I get on your page? How do I accept you've called me to love that person, forgive that person, to, to stand up for the truth, to, to teach my kids, to, to say that this is the truth, to stand in that gap. That's where you need to spend your time. How can I trust the advice of the perfect counselor? Three, if you truly believe God is all-powerful, how does that impact the way you react to chaos? This is important. If your belief is that God is not all-powerful because this situation exists, then God's never able to help you because your situation is bad and you've declared God can't help. Or you go, God could have stopped this. He didn't then I better figure out how to trust him in the process because I trust his character and nature and he could stop it, but he didn't. So God has a reason. God has a purpose. How do I trust him? You see how that changes the perspective? The perspective sometimes is this is really hard. God doesn't love me. Or this is really hard. God must not be able to because if I were God, I would do it differently as if God needs to adhere to us. If you really believe he's all powerful, then what it really comes down to is, well, do I trust him? Yeah, and some bad things happen. Do I trust he'll make those things right? Four, how does Advent help you celebrate the birth of Jesus better? Hopefully you're you're, you're encapsulating, okay, hope, peace, love. You're you're seeing these things. And so when when you get to Christmas, you're like, all of these things are mine because Jesus came to earth. All of these things. And Christmas doesn't become a throwaway, tack on, go through the motions type of thing. So much more when we see all of what the Old Testament tells us. These are all the things you get in your King Jesus. He knows everything. He loves you. He can do anything. Be at peace. Last one. Is there an area of your life that is in chaos that you need to trust the Lord with? This is really important. You have an opportunity to walk out of here this morning and be at peace with God. But that might mean you need to lay down that chaos you're holding. Whether it's, you know, your kids, government, your marriage, family member, and you're trusting that the Lord will take care of it. Because you have some family coming over for the holidays, I'm sure. And you might even already have your war planned. I'm going to say this, I'm going to drop bombs, and I'm going to go in the kitchen and make them deal with it. Right? Or I'm going to say this, it's going to make them mad, they'll leave, and I won't have to spend Christmas with them. Right? Like, you already got your war plan battled out. You're ready to throw blows, and it's like, you know what? They're a difficult person. God knows that. Well, they need to change. God knows that too. Let him work with the change. You work on acting like Christ, showing them Christ, being like Christ. He'll work on making them change. And maybe you'll never see it, 
But do you trust he'll deal with it? Hear me when I say this. When he says, uphold it with justice. I get some of you have been really, really wounded in evil, evil ways. God saw it. He knows. And this text says he will surely do it. You can let that pain go. You do not need to hold it. You can be at full peace that whatever God does with that person is far greater than anything you could do to them. And you can focus on loving the father, loving the children, and letting him draw the conclusions, letting him find the solutions. And you can focus on being a part of how he created you to love and follow him. You can be at peace. It's one of the greatest messages you'll ever hear, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. The Prince of Peace is our King. He he made a way for us to be at peace with you. He he made a way for us to to be content in our life. He made a way for us uh, to love you and be with you and trust you and have a perfect Father. That's so amazing and we neglect that so often. I pray that we would leave here at peace with you. At peace, not at war. Not at war with each other. Not at war with the world. Trusting your judgments. Trusting your decisions. Trusting your character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Good passage to go into communion. Um, And I say that a lot because it's true. And one thing to know with communion, just kind of the business side of this, and people laugh at me, but you, you won't if it happens to you. Take the bread first, right? Lift that first. Because if you go juice first and then you go bread, it ends up on you and the person next to you. Nobody likes that, okay? Bread first, then juice. And, and what do we do here? We remember what Jesus did on the cross. He pays for our sin. That we're sinners and we're at war with God. And through Christ making the payment for our sin, that allows us to be at peace with God, that our sin's paid for. And we believe that, we accept that. And so what that means is we no longer need to be at war with God about the things we don't like, about our insecurities, about our fears, about our angers, about our concerns. We can, we can just trust him. And so here's my challenge during this communion is that whatever you're holding on to, whatever it is that you're just at war with God, And you're like, no, God, it needs to be like this. And it has to happen like this. And this isn't fair. And I can't let this go. That you would lay it at the feet of Jesus. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. That's part of confessing your sin, that you're holding on to something you need to let down. That you're not trusting him as a father. You're not trusting him as a judge. You're not trusting him as loving you perfectly, that somehow he's withholding his love. Somehow he's not upholding his justice. Somehow that his knowledge is incomplete. When we hold things like that, it's a sin against God. Communion is the opportunity to say, God, I lay this at your feet. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that I do this. I'm so sorry that I don't trust you, that I have all this anger. Please take my anger. I trust you will deal with that person. I trust you will deal with that health. I trust you will deal with that official, that boss, that child, whatever. I just lay it at your feet. Help me let it go and just be at peace with where I'm at, that you love me. I'm with you. You love me perfectly and completely. I'm always yours. Heaven is my home. And walk out of communion just at peace with God, that you know your sin's forgiven, 
he's God, you're not, you can trust him. And that that light will lead you the rest of the way until God calls you home or Christ comes back. That you could be at peace, not at war. You get to do that during communion. And so as you go into a time of prayer and you walk through that, and hopefully you find peace that you're forgiven, he'll be the judge, he'll take care of it. Uh, John's going to come up and lead us in a celebration. What's the celebration? That we're not at war with God, that Christ died, sin's paid for, heaven is the home, the heavenly Father is perfect, he knows everything, he's all-powerful, and we get to be his children, and we get to spend eternity with him. That's a glorious celebration that has to happen in communion. It's the exclamation part to the forgiveness of sins, to the security of salvation, to the being at peace with the Creator and being at peace with each other. So I'm gonna pray and then you just take some time and walk through remembering the cross, what he did, and just lay whatever you're holding down at his feet and let it stay there and ask him to help you keep it there so that you can leave here at peace, knowing he has you, holds you, and keeps you. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you're a God who forgives. You're a God that didn't let us stay enemies, that you, um, through Christ's blood shed on the cross, purchases us to be his children, moving from enemies to children. And it's my deep prayer and communion that, God, we we would lay the wars at your feet. We would lay the anger and the fear and the angst and the insecurity and the jealousy and all the things at your feet and just say, you paid for that, you paid for that. I trust you. And we would be at peace at the end of that and just celebrate the work of the cross through song, that you're great and mighty and can do all things. And that brings us great joy and great comfort for the King that you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.